0: So today we're looking at Exodus 3, verse 13 to 17. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites a land flowing with milk and honey
1: Good afternoon, great to see you here at the EU public meeting. I'm really glad you could join us today as we continue our look at the book of Exodus in God's Word. A wise person once said this, We are a culture obsessed with success and so we are haunted by the prospect of failure. We are a culture obsessed with success and haunted by the prospect of failure. Actually, it wasn't a wise person. I made it up myself this week, um, so I reckon it's not too bad. Actually, um, I don't know if you agree with me though. We're a culture obsessed with success and haunted by the prospect of failure. I think we're often driven by notions of what it means to be a success. After all, who, frankly, wants to be a failure? But what does it mean to be a success in our society? Now, maybe you know. Just a moment ago, you were discussing what are the marks. Of success. Do you have any suggestions? What do what the, they say are the marks of success? Any suggestions? Happiness. Thank you. yes. A good job. Yep. That's certainly a marker. Sorry. Achieving your goals, whatever that is, whatever they may be, as long as you're achieving your own personal agenda, that's success. Yeah. They're all great suggestions. I thought about it a bit this week, and I sort of clumped them together under a few different he- headings. I think there's material markers of success in our culture, the Audi sports car, the house in a leafy suburb, holidays which require you to have a passport, you know, like if you want to go to Tasmania or something like that. (laughs) There's also career markers uh, of success. What firm do you work for? Not just that you had a job, but what firm are you working for? And how many hours do you work? Because obviously the more hours you work, the more responsible your position and the more successful you've been. There's also relational markers of success in our culture. Do you have a committed lover? Have you managed to have a family and juggled it with your career and double income? Do you have friends with which to keep loneliness at bay? There's personal markers of success. Your clothes, your shoes, your look, your weight, all are markers of success in our culture. And I could go on to academic markers of success or financial markers of success. It's worth pondering, isn't it, whether any of those measures of success are truly valid. Is that really what success looks like in God's world, where Jesus Christ is Lord? Are they the markers of success? It's also worth pondering the effect that the world's messages have on us. Constantly we're bombarded. This is what it is to succeed. And then we're left with a real sense of it's so easy to fail. I could fail in so many different ways in my life. What happens if I don't make it in my chosen career? What happens if I don't find someone to love me? What happens if I end up, for goodness sake, living in the western suburbs, in a house that I don't own, paying rent, in a dead-end job with a dysfunctional family? Failure. I am a failure. I can say that because I grew up in Mount Royal. something yeah. Anyway. I think deep down, many of us fear failure or at least being thought of as a failure by others. We know that we are inadequate in some sense. We know that we have weaknesses and we worry that they will be our undoing. We're a culture obsessed with success and therefore we're haunted by the prospect of failure. The question I want to raise today is this though. What happens when we bring God, the one true God, into this picture? Not some God of our imagination, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. What happens when we put our weaknesses and our fear of failure together with him? And what we'll see today as we look at Exodus chapters 3 and 4, I think will be comforting for us when we face that reality, as well as challenging in regard to this question of our own weaknesses. Now, the key truths that we'll learn when we look at Exodus 3 and 4 are not going to really be about you or about me. The key truths that will make all the difference when it comes to success and failure are about God, are about His character, are about His passions and His activity in the world. That's what's going to make all the difference. Now, in case you're joining us for the first time this week or maybe you missed it last week, in which you can or will be able to download last week's talk from the EU website shortly by the way we're spending the three weeks last week, this week and next week looking at the beginning of this astounding Bible, the book of Exodus so a quick recap is in order last week Exodus 1 and 2 what did we see there? we saw the terrible plight of God's people the Israelites they were in terrible slavery and oppression in the land of Egypt outside of the land that God had promised them And we've met Moses, this Israelite, who seemed to have some real potential as a guy who might rescue God's people from this situation. It seemed like maybe he could be the deliverer. Yet, in Exodus 1 and 2, we realise that this guy with so much potential is actually in exile from his own people. He's stuck in the land of Midian and can't even get back to his own people in Egypt. But the great sweet climax of chapters 1 and 2 was right at the end of chapter 2 when we read that God heard the cries of his people, he saw their situation, he was concerned for them and he remembered his covenant. He remembered the promises he made to their ancestor Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. So the question that we all were left with last week as we headed into chapter 3 was, what is God's plan? What is he actually going to do? He said he's remembered his covenant promises. What what action is he going to take? And that's when we hit chapter 3. Now what I've done is I've divided chapters 3 and 4 into sort of three headings and I'll spend most of my time on the first two headings and I'm going to try to apply it as we go through. So that's just so you know how we're going to go today. So first of all, first heading, we meet the one true God, the God who makes himself known. That's who God is, the God who makes himself known. First thing the Lord God does here is he reveals his plan to Moses in Midian. And he recruits Moses for the task of bringing the people out of Egypt. How does God get Moses' attention? Well, he does it with what I call a non-burning bush. You might have heard the story before as the burning bush, which is really weird because the whole point of it is it wasn't burning. Um, you might like to have a look there. If you've got Exodus, you could open up to chapter 3. Let's have a look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is also known as Mount Sinai. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. That's the point, right? It's not burning. So here's Moses. God is getting his attention with this non-burning bush. Well, having got his attention, then God reveals himself. We'll continue on, verses 5 and 6. Then God said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Immediately, when God reveals himself to Moses here as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, straight away we're reminded that God is a God who's made promises because he made promises to those dudes, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of the covenant who established this relationship with this particular group of people in the forms of various promises in the covenant. But God doesn't just reveal his reality to Moses. He doesn't just say, hey Moses, you might have always wondered where I was. Guess what? Here I am. That's not actually the point of the non-burning bush, just to reveal his reality, his existence. God reveals here his character. We can see this here when he goes on in verses 7 to 10 to reveal his plans. He says, I am going to rescue my people. I've heard their cries. I've seen their condition and now I'm going to come down and rescue them and take them to the land I promised. He's revealing his character, what he's like. Why does God do that? Why does God reveal his character to Moses and to us? It's because he wants a relationship with us. God is not like a train strike. right? When a train strike is announced, oh, there's now a train strike in my life, I just sort of move around it. you know. I just... Or when I'm told there's an exam or an assignment. Okay, it's just an objective sort of reality that I just have to deal with. The fact that God is real is not like that in your life. Just some sort of reality you need to sort of deal with or cope with, work around. God wants a relationship with you. So he needs to reveal his character to you so that you might know how to respond to him. And that's what he does there for Moses He reveals his character. And as we go on through the book of Exodus we'll see that this is the way God works. When he reveals himself he's not just revealing his existence, he reveals his character so that we might be in relationship with him and know how we ought to respond to him. Now this would have been no small event. Having God speak to you out of a non-burning bush just imagine for a moment that you're on your way home today, you get off your bus or your train or out of your house, you're sort of walking up towards your house along the street and suddenly on the other side of the street you see a bush that so looks like it's on fire. You think, oh, okay, that's a bit weird. But then you look at it and go, but it's on fire but it's not burning. Oh, that's really strange. And so you wander over, you have a bit of a look at it because it would be pretty intriguing and then suddenly you hear, come no closer. You are standing on holy ground. I am the one true God. You're unlikely at that point to go, okay, well actually I'm on my way home to play some tennis, so I'll just keep going on my way. That's going to rock your world a little bit, isn't it? That's sort of going to sort of shake you up just a little bit and might sort of start to change things a little bit. This is no small deal that God is revealing himself here to Moses in a non-burning bush. But what's it got to do with you? You weren't there. It doesn't have anything to do with you. How does this sort of apply to us or or work for us? Well, it's worth pausing at this moment to reflect on what sort of method are we going to use to find some meaning in this narrative? I mean, maybe the application is if you walk home today and you do see a non-burning bush, take your shoes off because it's holy ground. Is that the application of this story? No, that can't be the application of this story. What is the point of this story for you and for me? What's our method here when we read, as Christians, narratives, accounts of what's happened many, many, many years ago? Well, the point that I want to make today is that as we read it as Christians, the key thing you've got to get on top of is the issue of continuity and discontinuity. When we read these Old Testament stories, there are continuities throughout all of Scripture but there are also discontinuities, things that are not the same now as they were then. So, for example, one of the great continuities throughout the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, is the character of God. God's character does not change. So, when God reveals his character here, his passion, his commitment for his people, that he wants to save his people, when he reveals that to Moses here, we can know that that is still true today. That is God's character. That is who God is. That's what he's like. When Jesus came, Jesus didn't announce a new sort of better God, a different God. I'm a bit of a West Wing fan, which I know, I know, I know it's terrible. You know, straight away you label me as some lefty intellectual snob, ABC viewer, whatever. I don't care really. I watch the show, it's not bad. Um, There was a moment in the current series of the West Wing, which I really liked, one thing about Americans, if I can say that, not really knowing any, um, <laughs> just, just knowing their TV shows, is that they're unafraid to discuss religion, which frankly in Australia we very rarely ever do. And they have, therefore they have religion in their TV shows. And there's this scene where there's the President of the United States, Bartlett, President Bartlett, sitting across a tub of ice cream with a Republican leader, so a guy from the other party who's going to be a contender to be President at the next election. So, 2 who they're sitting opposite over a tub of ice cream. It's a bit unreal. Um, and they're discussing the Bible. And the Republican challenger is relating this story that as a book collector, he'd once been given a very old and valuable Bible by his wife as a president. And he was so excited, he said, to get this very valuable old Bible. So excited was he to get it that he decided to actually read it. And he started to read it and he said, I couldn't believe that Christians believe in this God, this vengeful God who would judge people in all these terrible ways. I couldn't believe that Christians would believe in such a God. If you've read some of the Old Testament, you might might be sympathetic to that initial response. Then the president in the show uh, responded and his answer, his solution to this problem was, oh, well, I'm more of a New Testament man myself. That is, as though Jesus came in bringing in God Mark 2. You know, the better God. Now we have a God of love and mercy and who forgives everybody. As though Jesus brought in a different God. No, one of the great continuities of the Bible is the character of the one true God. He is merciful and forgiving and he's also just. One of the great continuities is the great character of God. But at the same time, within that continuity, there is... Development and progression. That is, when you get to the end of salvation history, when you get to the end of the Bible, you know more about God than you knew at the beginning. God's revelation of himself is progressive throughout history, captured for us in the Scriptures. So, in particular, if I just throw some of these up for us, we need to read the Old Testament in the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who we read, has come as the fulfilment of all that came before. So I've got some verses there you can look up in your own time. Luke 24, verse 27, where Jesus says that the Old Testament is written about him. Or John 5, verse 39, where he says, again, that the Old Testament testifies about him. Or in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, where Paul says every one of God's promises finds its Yes, this answer is fulfilment in Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus Christ comes as the climax of all of God's revealing activity. So when we hear about God revealing himself in the non-burdening bush, we need to read it in the light of Jesus, God's ultimate self-revelation. So think about what Jesus had to say about revealing God. John chapter 14, verse 9, he says this, Jesus says, astoundingly, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you see Jesus, if you've been there and seen him, you would have seen the character and person of God. And in a way you have seen him. You see him through the, the, the testimony of the eyewitnesses. If you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. Or the writer to the Hebrews Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 Jesus is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. Or yet another New Testament writer, the Apostle Paul, Jesus is the image of the invisible God for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's Colossians chapter 1. Now may I say this has real impact upon us. What it means is that we are not out there looking for the equivalent of the non-burning bush. We're not out there saying if only God would reveal himself to us then we'd be set hoping that some bush is going to sort of not catch fire as we walk home. No, because God's already spoken to us he's spoken to us in his son the man Jesus Christ but that raises all sorts of issues for us two in particular. First question is this in the light of what God has revealed are we willing to listen to what God has to say? How will we respond to God's revelation of himself in the Lord Jesus Christ? As we'll see in this book of Exodus, even in the person of Moses, God's people do not always respond that well when God reveals himself. They don't always take it on board and respond appropriately. And that question is there for us. How are we going to respond? In fact, the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 12 verse 25 says it matters more for us than even for them. He says this, he says, See that you, speaking to Christians, see that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. For if they did not escape, when they refuse the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? Are you willing to listen to what God has said? Second question though, is are we content with the sufficiency of what God has said? Let me try and explain what I mean here. I meet many Christians who hanker after some sort of newer revelation, some newer word from God. I want something personal, something that's just direct to me in my current situation. Something that's, you know, really just sort of accessible. Frankly, the Bible is a, a lot of words on a page in a big book. I'd much prefer the DVD version. You know, the bit that sort of just I just sit there and it sort of hits me. That's what I want from God. Just to be just direct, personal, specific communication. That's what I crave. And I'll go anywhere where it might be on. I just want to say I fear that that sort of discontent with God's word as he's given it to us is just not honouring of God. It's not honouring of his revelation of himself in his son Jesus. If we're not careful, really, the story there is we're just being lazy. We don't want to have to reach. We just want it to come straight to us as passengers. Or maybe we don't understand how God's word works. That is, this is not a boring, irrelevant word. This is God's specific, personal word to you. The writer of the Hebrews, uh, again in chapter 4 verse 12 says, The Word of God is boring and tiresome. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say the Word of God is boring and tiresome. He says the Word of God is living and active. As blunt as an old butter knife. No, he doesn't say it's blunt as an old butter knife. He says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. A machete has one edge. A sword can have two. You imagine a sword going into you. Ow! Oh, that's not going to be nice. <laughs> that's going to have some impact. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing. He says, until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Friends, here is your non-burning bush. Here is the one true God who has revealed Himself to you. Are you willing to listen? Are you content with what is revealed? Well, let's move to the second heading for these chapters, the God who acts through weakness. That's who the one true God is, the God who acts through weakness. How does Moses respond to God's revelation of his plan to fulfil his covenant promises to his people? The answer is not very enthusiastically. He's he's not actually a great model for us at this particular point. In fact, Moses pulls out every single excuse he can think of to get out of being the chosen deliverer. He doesn't want a bar of this. If he could run a million miles, he would. In fact, he's got five different excuses. So I'm not going to read all the way through, but I'll throw them up for you. Excuse number one that Moses comes up with. I can't do this. So there in chapter 3 verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? That is, I'm not up to this. I don't have what it takes. God, you'd have to be absolutely star-crazy mad to send me to Pharaoh to bring your people out of Egypt. I'm not up to that sort of task. Well, God's response, of course, is that God himself is the one who will be doing the hard work. This is God's plan, not Moses there in verse 12. God said, I will be with you. And then he has a very interesting thing to say to Moses. He says, and this will be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. The point was never Moses' capability, as though somehow he had sufficient sort of great leadership abilities that he was the one who was sufficient for this task. No, no. It was always, the sufficiency always lay with the one true God, whose plan it was. But it does seem that God here knows that Moses is going to struggle a bit. Maybe, Maybe with pride, it's not quite clear. But what he's saying is, Moses, this will be the sign for you that I'm the one who sent you. The sign will be that when you bring the people out, together with them you'll worship me here. You'll bring them here to worship me just as though God sort of knows frankly if Moses leads all these great people out out of Egypt out of slavery I mean you've got to that's got to be doing some good things for your ego at that point you've got to be thinking yeah man all the Israelites following me through the sea all those Egyptians now dead in the water I'm doing okay but God's saying no no this will be the sign for you that it was I who sent you you'll bring them here and you'll worship me a little confirmatory sign for Moses after the event that actually was God in charge. Now, I reckon if God says to you, I want you to do this job for me and I'll be with you, you've got to think, "Okay, that's got to be enough. You go on. But not for Moses. He had a bit of a problem here. He says, but God, can you really do this? Can you pull this off, God? There in verse 13, Moses says to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they ask me what is his name what shall I say to them you need to understand there that in the ancient Near Eastern culture to know a God's name was to know his character to know his power to know his ability his name tells you something about what he can do and the Israelites are sitting there they've been in Egypt 400 years they're enslaved they're not free to just go and the Egyptians have all their own gods you'd have to think at that point it does seem like the Egyptian gods are Maybe more powerful. So when Moses comes along and says, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, he says, well what's his name? Like, can he really do this? Like, this is a big deal. And God graciously reveals his name to Moses, verse 14 and 15. He says, I am who I am. That's my name. I am the God who really is. I'm the, I'm the real deal. I am who I am. The other gods are, are, are false pretenders, just idols, make-believe that I am the one true God, I am who I am. Tell them that I am who sent you, the God who is. And then he goes on and talks about, tell them that the Lord, in capital letters in your English Bible, has sent you. Now a bit of background there, the Lord, in capital letters, is the way the English translators have represented the personal name of God that he revealed at that point. Which, if you were to literally translate it into English, it would just be four letters. Y-H-W-H, which sometimes people try to pronounce Yahweh. Right? That was the name that God revealed to Moses, Yahweh. Why? Well, because that word in Hebrew is related to the verb to be, related to the I am-ness of God. I right? tell them that Yahweh has sent you. The reason it's represented in your Bible as Lord, well, you need to go and read your preface. If you haven't ever read the preface to your English translation, you really ought to sometimes find out what the translators were doing, what was the story what's the principles they've used to translate the scriptures into the language you can understand and what you'll read there is whenever they came across God's personal name Yahweh in the Old Testament because the Jews around the time of Jesus didn't even want to say God's name in case they might accidentally say it in vain they, they wouldn't even say his name So if they were reading out the Scriptures, when they came to Yahweh, they would just say another word instead. They would say the word Adonai, which means Lord, Master. They would just do a a substitution every time they saw it there. And so what happened is when they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek around the time of Jesus, they just followed that convention. Wherever the Hebrew Yahweh was, they just wrote the Greek word for Lord because that's what everyone said anyway. And what's happened is your English translators... Have just followed that convention. Whenever they saw the divine man Yahweh, they wrote the English word Lord. Now that's not bad. Lord captures something about God's character, doesn't it? He's the Lord, the Master of all. So it has lost that connection with the I Amness. But anyway, that's why you need to read your preface. So that's Okay, moving on. Notice again here when God reveals Himself. As I said before, He then reveals His character. I'm not going to read it out to you, but verses 16 to 22. God reveals his plan to save his people and Moses told here look Moses you've got to go second time Moses just go now right in fact God lays it all out for him he says this is what's going to happen you'll go and speak to the elders of, Israel, of the, the nation of Israel and they will believe you then you'll go to Pharaoh but he won't so then I'll do these amazing powerful signs and then he'll let you all go so I'm just laying it out for you Moses you know the game plan this is the drill now you can just go No. Can't go yet. What happens if they don't believe me? Well, hang on a minute. I just told you that they will. God just said, you'll go to the elders and they'll believe you. And Moses oh, but what if they don't? Now, God is very gracious at this point. And he gives Moses three, well, you could call them party tricks. They're way too impressive for that. He gives them three signs that he could do. One is, you know, drop your staff down. It turns into a snake and then grab it by the tail and send it back into a staff again. That's pretty good. And another one is, put your hand inside your jacket, pull it out and it's all leprous. And then put it back in and it's all good again. That's pretty cool. And the other one is, take some water from the Nile River and as you pour it out, it's turned into blood. Three pretty good signs. God very graciously says, okay, you can do these signs. That'll authenticate you as my messenger that I really have sent you. Okay, so surely now he's ready to go. No, not Moses. It's almost comical. Like it's like watching those terrible, you know, the office, you ever watch the office show? It's just, it's funny but it's also just really cringeworthy or, or faulty Cows. You just go, oh no. This is what it's like. Moses is just, so many excuses but you've got to think, oh come on Moses, it's getting pretty uncomfortable now. Moses then says, oh I'm just a hopeless public speaker. Chapter 4 verse 10 we're up to now. Moses says to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now, that you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Which frankly sounds pretty eloquent to me. But anyway <laughs> Maybe it's got lost in the translation, maybe. But you've got to be kidding. I mean God has said he's going to go with you. He's told you exactly how things are going to happen. He's given you these amazing signs. And now you you just go, well, well, I'm I'm not that good on my feet, really, speaking. Well, it would be comical if it weren't so distrusting for Moses. Uh, God's response is pretty full on at this point. Basically says, what the heck are you talking about? So, verses 11 and 12, Then the Lord said to him, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go! Third time he's been told. Now go! I will be with your mouth and teach you what you're to speak. No, Moses tried every excuse and now he's, just, now he's desperate. Please just send somebody else. Finally we get a very honest moment from Moses. Just send somebody else. Verses 13-15 to 15, Moses said, Oh my Lord, please send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, What of your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently. Even now he is coming out to meet you and when he sees you, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you shall say. So finally Moses at this point gives in. He makes his plans to head off back to Egypt. Surely the most reluctant prophet ever but also the greatest. One of the greatest prophets ever from such a poor start, if you fast forward through to after Moses has died and and read what they say about him once he's died in Deuteronomy chapter 34 verses 10 to 12 you read there never since, says the writer whenever he's writing this, never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face he was unequal for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt This is where there's a great continuity for you and me. Because here you see God showing his great mighty power in a weak person. The one true God who really is, this is the God who acts, who chooses to act through weakness. And that's true of you and me. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul talked about himself as having this great treasure from God, the great Gospel of God, his treasure in a jar of clay. Think disposable cup. That's what he's talking about. Because that's what they use, to disposable cup, just clay jars. I've got this great treasure of God, the gospel, in a disposable cup. Me. And when Paul's writing to the Christians at Corinth in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 26 verse 29, he says this. He says, Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one may boast in the presence of God. That's God's policy, friends. He chooses to use weakness to show his great strength. You can see it in the person of Jesus Christ, the great King of all kings, the Lord of all creation, born in a manger with just a struggling few motley shepherds as subjects. You see, the great eternal Son of God become a human being and die the death of a criminal. You see the great victory over all the principalities and powers, the victory over sin and death itself worked out where? On two bits of wood outside Jerusalem. That's how God works. He shows his great, mighty, powerful strength through weakness. Even through you. So go back to the markers of success with which we started. Don't be persuaded by the worldly markers of success. You may be weak in the world's eyes. You may be a failure. So what? You might end up in the western suburbs, in a house you don't own, in a dead-end job, with a somewhat dysfunctional family. So, are you in relationship with the one true God? Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because God has displayed his amazing power by choosing you if you're a Christian with faith in Christ for Himself. So the meaning of life, friends, is found not in worldly visions of success. The meaning of life is found in worship of the one true God. So my final few minutes, I'm just going to paint the contours for you for this last section, which I don't have time to go through. The one true God is the God who saves his people for worship. You can see it there in uh, chapter 4, verses 21 and 23. I'll just read that to you. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform to Pharaoh all the wonders that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall pray to Pharaoh. And these words are terribly significant for understanding the whole history of God's people, including your identity today. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, I said to you, let my son go, that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. But the point there is the great privilege of being God's son. Israel was not a terribly impressive nation. It was in slavery, for goodness sake. But God has this relationship where he says, This nation is my firstborn son. Firstborn means the one who will inherit everything. The son who will get all the inheritance. And there's great continuity there through the rest of the Bible. Because when you come to Jesus, God's great yes to all his promises, he's described in Matthew chapter 2 as God's son. In fact, Matthew says there in chapter 2, out of Egypt God calls his son, talking about Jesus. Jesus is the true Israel, the true firstborn son of God. And then how does that throw all the way through to us? Well, come to Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 where anyone who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is described as a son of God irrespective of your gender for so it goes right on to say there's neither male nor female Jew nor Greek everyone is a son in the sense of the one who will inherit the great promises of God everyone is a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ but what does that life of worship look like? Let my son go that they may worship me. Worship means obedience. That's what worship means. Worship isn't just what you do at church on a Sunday, you know, sing a few songs and a, bit of, a few prayers. That's not, I mean, that's part of worship, but that's not what worship is. I'll tell you what worship is. Worship is a life-consuming relationship. That's what worship is, a life-consuming relationship. God wants his people to worship him to have their lives centred upon Him. And that involves obedience. If you want to see that in Exodus chapter 4, there's a very weird bit right at the very end, which I'm not going to talk to you about, but you might talk to me about. It's a bit where Moses now, finally on the way to Egypt, Well, at least God's plans underway. Moses is heading back to Egypt and get this. We then read that God meets Moses and God tries to kill Moses. Sorry, Rowan, did you just say that? Yes. After all that trouble we've just been through, Moses is heading back to Egypt and God then meets Moses and tries to kill him. And then Moses' wife, Zipporah, grabs a knife and grabs Moses' son, circumcises him. Okay, you're now going, come on, we're at the end of last time, we should be sort of moving on here. Now you're you're talking about circumcision. Circumcises him, takes the foreskin and touches his feet with it. And then God lets him go. Okay, that's a bit weird. What's all that about? I'll tell you what that's about. That's about worship. Why is that about worship? Because right from the beginning, when God made the promises, the covenant promises to Abraham, He said, "This will be the sign that you're a member of the covenant. That you circumcise your sons on the eighth day. That's a sign of you be obedient to me. It's a sign that you're in this covenant. We're in this agreement together. And Moses. The one chosen by God is on the way back to Egypt with an uncircumcised son. And God's saying, no. No, Moses. Obedience matters here. That's the life, friends, that we've been saved for. The life of worship. Now, continuities and discontinuities. Continuities, yes, we're still on about worship and obedience. Discontinuities, no more circumcision. The New Testament makes that clear. But you might like to discuss that further with me over afternoon tea. Let me just lead us in prayer and we'll go. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have graciously revealed yourself to us through the testimony uh, of those uh, who recorded what happened with Moses in the burning bush, but also, Lord, what you have revealed to us most clearly in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have chosen us, weak and frail though we are, to be your people. We pray, Father, that you would empower us by your Spirit, that we might live lives of worship in obedience to
0: you. We pray it for your glory. Amen. Thanks, friends.